to do in these meetings uh, over the course of Monday through Thursday is to uh, look at themes uh, in the upper room ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. I suppose if you're to be exact and accurate about it, you might have to say that although it is commonly supposed that the upper room ministry of the Lord Jesus runs from chapter 13 through to chapter 17, uh, I think it is uh, my view uh, that uh, they left the upper room, and I think you can demonstrate that by looking at the text uh, during the course of these chapters. So I strongly suspect, strictly speaking, the upper room ministry is uh, chapter 13 and 14, and that what is said thereafter is probably itinerant ministry. I don't know if he ever walked with somebody and he's kind of, kind of spoken to you. Or, uh, one famous preacher of a day gone by called it perambulatory ministry. That's a very English way of putting it. Uh, but it's ministry given to the disciples, I think, on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. So maybe the better way of looking at it is the farewell ministry of Christ. That would cover uh, these chapters, um, and it may not, in fact, be the case that it was all uttered in the upper room. Um, the ministry about the true vine, I suspect, probably was as they were walking past the temple. So that's my aim. Now, given that I've got four meetings and... Uh, there are five chapters in the ministry. I'm not going to take up a chapter tonight. I'm going to just try and look at some themes that run through it. And tonight we're going to be kind of maybe more concentrating on, on doctrinal issues. Don't immediately switch off. Doctrine can be interesting at times. And uh, my aim is to try and keep you interested in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit as it is disclosed in uh, the upper room. There are three chapters in the section that speak about the Holy Spirit chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16, and they all shed light on the miraculous and wonderful and powerful ministry of the Spirit of Truth in the life of his children. So let's just read the passages that bear upon that issue to begin with, and that will require us to turn to chapter 14, and we'll begin to read at verse 16. I should say, if you want to know anything about my my professional life, I don't intend to say anything about it on the platform because uh, I think this is not the place for <laughs> for such matters, but I'm very happy to speak to you afterwards if you're curious to know what I look like in a wig. <laughs> the answer is not a pretty sight. You know, I have to tell you, oh, it's over here, right? I, this is a game you boys played me, you know that? I, I was in Saugus on Sunday and the, the glass had disappeared. But the reason it had disappeared is I covered up with one of my notes. So somebody out in the audience, as I was looking for it, said, it's in front of you. So, right, tonight is to the left of me. Okay, let's chapter 14, and we'll read from verse number 16. Uh, the Lord Jesus is speaking to the disciples here, and he says this, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Now uh, drop down a little bit to verse number 25. 
<clears throat> These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now, over to chapter 15 now. <coughs> John 15, and we'll read verse uh, 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, and ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. Now over into chapter 16, and we'll read from verse uh, number 8, uh, or rather verse 7 for connection. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then words of explanation are then added. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, meaning not about himself, but on his own authority. The word carries the strength of speaking on his own account or in his own behalf. He will speak uh, on behalf of the Father and on behalf of Christ. But whatsoever he shall hear, he shall speak, and he shall show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. Now that's all that we'll read from the good word of God. Now, one of the, the great issues really at this time in the Lord's ministry is that he has explained to the disciples uh, that he is about to leave them. And that was pretty shattering information for the disciples. It uh, may be difficult for us really to fully appreciate the enormity of it for them, but it's not, I think, exclusively that they had come to appreciate him. If we knew that somebody we appreciated was to be taken away, we would be disconcerted by that fact. Uh, if we, moreover, believed that he was the deliverer of Israel and our hopes for him as the Messiah were pinned on him and then all of a sudden the news was broken to us that he was about to leave the scene, uh, that might be disconcerting. But I think really the thing that uh, kind of broke their heart a little bit was that they had come to depend upon him for protection and guidance in a very uncertain and dangerous world. I think we maybe... Uh, have really no conception of how dangerous it was to be a disciple of the Lord in the days when these events transacted. They had moved into the capital, they had moved into Jerusalem, the seat of political 
religious and Pharisaic intrigue. They knew that the, the priests and the Roman authorities were opposed to the message that they preached. And they likely knew that uh, their lives daily were at risk. And they knew, moreover, that the man that they had been following those, these three, three and a half years was the only man they could really trust and depend upon to negotiate them through these difficult days. And the thought that he was about to go uh, was pretty catastrophic for them. But what really the Lord Jesus does when he uh, gives the ministry of the upper room is that he's trying to explain to them that something we all need to learn, which life doesn't stand still. Sometimes things, you know, are torn from us that we cannot imagine doing without. Maybe even people that we love and respect and have depended on for many a long year, and it is almost impossible for us to imagine life without them. And in a measure, and in a greater measure, that was what was happening here, because he was explaining to them that in order for God's purposes to move forward, he had to go. I mean, it is impossible to imagine the Lord growing older. Just think about it. Um, he had grown from infancy to a man of, depending on what chronology of scriptures you trust, either 33 and a half years of age, or if you're a devotee of Mr. Newbery and a gentleman called Harold Honer, who's written a book called The Chron Chronological Aspects of the Death of Christ, he thinks he was maybe closer to 36. Newbery thinks that. If you've got a Newbery Bible, look at the dates, top left-hand corner, and he, uh, contrary to what I have ever heard, believes that the Lord was crucified at about 36 years of age, having been born in 3 BC. But the Lord had reached a point in his ministry when he had to depart the scene. Maturation and aging was never anticipated for the Lord Jesus. He would never grow old. His humanity would never age and wither. That was impossible. He would enter into the glorified body that he carried into the heavenly realm. And when we see the Lord Jesus, we'll see him, I think, in that stage of maturity and development that was uh, linked with him precisely at that point of time when he was taken from the scene and taken up into heaven. So he had to go. But the fundament, fundamental reason he had to go, and I just touch upon this, is that another comforter had to come. Now, the strength and force of what he says in chapter 14, when he says, I will not leave, uh, rather, chapter 14, verse number 16, I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter, is that what he's really saying is that he's going to give them somebody that would just carry on his work. You see, that word, another there, um, I think in the English language we uh, only have one word that is a word of distinction, um, uh, which is another. But in the Greek language there's two words, and one word, uh, heteros, means another of a different sort. So if you want to say there's somebody coming after me and he's different in character, from the likes of me, you would use that word. But then there's a word, alios, which means another of the same kind. And when he says here, I will give you another comforter, what he is teaching is that somebody just like me is going to come alongside and be a blessing and a help to you. Now, just think about it. The Lord Jesus' ministry, what was its geographic extent? 
Well, it is commonly thought that Galilee and Judea is a region that I would suspect, though I don't know, is probably smaller than New Jersey, although I probably need to go to an atlas or map to check that one out because I don't actually know how big your state is. If I was speaking to an English audience, I'd say it's smaller than Wales. But if I said that here, I'd just get a bunch of blank looks because you've no idea how big Wales is. But if I said it was probably, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this afterwards, probably smaller than New Jersey. It's a smaller-ish state, isn't it? Not the smallest, though. What's that? Rhode Island. You see? <laughs> Scotsmen know a thing or two about your country. <laughs> so it's small. And the Lord's public ministry never took him outside a geographic area that was, let's just for the sake of argument, say not any bigger than New Jersey. Now that's not big. He never wrote a book. Book. Not true. He never did. And if his ministry, confined as it was by his humanity, because the Lord's ministry was a confined geographic ministry, someone had to come that would give it global reach and global scope. And that is why the Spirit had to come to take over the ministry of Christ. He had been a comforter to them. Let's just use that word right now. He had been a blessing. He had been a guide. He had been a companion. He had been a teacher. He had been a protector. He had been um, a man who stood at their elbow in the most difficult days. But for a day and an hour and a moment in earth's history when the gospel would explode out of Jerusalem. What was required was another comforter. He had to go. So he went to heaven, and on the day of Pentecost, as you know, 50 days after Calvary, 10 days after he left this planet, they were waiting expectantly in the upper room, and the promise of the Messiah was fulfilled, and the Spirit was poured out on uh, those that were gathered in the upper room. And you know, there's that, that extraordinary day when they, they spoke in not merely tongues, but dialects. Now, I have been trying to do the Boston dialect. I've spent the past week trying to mimic these guys with incredible accents in the diners of Boston, and I have kind of failed. I, I, what I had discovered was that my audience up in Boston, Saugus, some of them, some of the older people in particular, were struggling in the, at the first meeting to actually understand what I was saying. I hope you're hearing me okay. And that's because, although I'm a, a posh Scotsman, um, I still have a Scottish accent. So that if you came to Peterhead or to the Valleys of Wales or to Cockney, London, you would hear a whole diversity of accents, some of which are to probably your average American, utterly impenetrable. Utterly impenetrable. So the, the miracle of Acts 2 was not merely that they spoke in other tongues, by the way, means languages. There could be, in my judgment, no debate about that. Even the tongues of 1 Corinthians 13, I think, are languages. But it was more than that. They spoke in the dialects of the regions and countries from whence these Pilgrims to Jerusalem had come. Now that is extraordinary. 
It's a little bit like standing at... If you ever visit London, there's a part of Hyde Park called Speaker's Corner. And there, people who have um, a message they want to uh, publish uh, go with their soapboxes and ladders, and they stand and they speak to people who come and listen. And, and it's a little bit like that, except everybody, as they heard, were able to hear people in their own language, not only in their own languages, but in Boston accents and in New Jersey accents, if you follow what I mean. They actually heard it in their own dialect talks, their own dialect. And what was going on was that God, through the Holy Spirit, was making the provision for the, for the gospel to be universalized. No longer a single man, an itinerant preacher, who never penned a hymn, wrote a poem, wrote a book, whose travels never took him farther north than the Sea of Galilee, and whose travels southward never took him any further than the Judean wilderness. But through the Holy Spirit, without any physical geographical limitations on his work, the gospel would become a universal message. Have you ever wondered about the gospel? You know, it is the only, if, I, if, if, if we just for a second just think about Christianity on a purely academic basis. There are those that make the study of religions and look at them side by side and observe and distinguish the features that they have one from another. The, the, gospel, the, the Christianity has one feature that is, is completely distinct from all other religions. And it's the speed with which it spread. It took 400 years for anybody to begin to proclaim the merits of a prophet called Muhammad. He, had to be, he of course, you know his bones are mouldering in Mecca, even as we speak this evening. Four centuries ran their course before ever the devotees of that so-called prophet began to make their mark in this world. You know, the gospel began to spread through the known world on the very day that the Spirit was given. And the extraordinary thing about the, the gospel is that it was preached by witnesses. Have you ever noticed how John is so very, very strong in the idea of being a witness? These things have I written unto you that you may know and yet you might believe. And he that spake knoweth what he says is true. He is a witness to the truth. And this was this single solitary reason that he was a witness. You know, to me it's an extraordinary thing. That if by a happenstance this little company here had not been gathered to the Lord's name here in New Jersey, but if we by happenstance were a little Christian assembly gathered to the Lord's name in, in the months that followed Calvary. What time did your breaking of bread end? 11.30 maybe. And let's just say lunch is at one. I could take you by the arm and we could walk out the walls of Jerusalem and stand in the spot where he died. Have you ever wondered what became of the crosses? I don't think any fragments remain contrary to the claims of some great denominations, but we might have gone out and seen what was left of the crosses. Were they removed immediately by the soldiers? Might the blood have still been drying on the stones? We could have stood at the very spot where the Savior had died. 
Why is that true? Because our faith is built on historic realities. And we were being witnessed. John was a witness. He saw the Son of God die and rise again. Why do men die for what they know is untrue? I believe with all my heart that one of the reasons the gospel was such a powerful influence in the world is that the men who preached it were men that, that, that knew that it was true. And within likely the first century, all of the, the men to whom this truth was taught, John being the last, had died for the sake of Christ. Would you die for something you knew wasn't true? You know, I suppose there are people who die for misguided reasons, but I can scarcely imagine that in the cell of Herod Antipas or in the Mamertine prison in Rome, that as Paul and his confederates knew that the day of their execution drew on, that they knew that what they were preaching was a lie, that they would ever have put their neck on the, on the, on the block or stood defenceless before the stones. The reason they died, the reason why the church has its seed plot in the martyr's blood is because these men knew that it was true. <laughs> you know, I could breathe a little bit of life into the Christians here in Midland Park. We are witnesses, say John. True it is we never saw him die. True it is we never saw him ascend to heaven. But we are part of that great chain of apostolic witnesses. We live in our own lives, in our own day, and we know the truth of it. And this book is the record of witnesses who died for what they saw and died for what they believed. And we worship no idea. We bow before no philosophy. We acknowledge no norms or principles. We believe in a Christ that died and rose and lives in heaven. And the men that died then died for that solitary truth. And this gospel that we preach, this saviour that we worship, it was men energised and empowered by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. And it spread like the proverbial wildfire. First through Syria and Judea, then up into Asia Minor, then it crossed, it leapt across the Adriatic Sea and took root in Greece and Macedonia. Then it, very, it caught fire in Rome and it spread and it spread and it continues to spread because the spirit of truth has come and because Christ and his ministry has been taken up by another comforter. Now I want just to speak to you just for a second about the word comforter. Back home I, I teach a Bible class and uh, they're not all bright college students like the Americans are. Was that, was that a laugh? I thought they were all, I thought you all went to Yale and Harvard in the meeting. That's kind of the impression I got in Saugus anyway. <coughs> Extremely bright people. We're a bit dull the Scots and we need to be taught carefully and slowly. Are you familiar with paraquat? A form of poison? 
You not use paraquat on these parts. It was a, a favoured means of killing in days gone by. Paraquat. Are you familiar with a parakeet? What's a parakeet? Oh, definitely Yale. Yeah. So I say to the young people back home, don't be confused. I am going to speak to you not about paraquat, that's a poison, or a parakeet, that's a bird, but the paraclete. <laughs> Keep that. <laughs> if you don't remember anything out of these meetings, just remember that we, it's the paraclete, the paracletos. That is the Greek word that is translated in the AV at any rate, comforter. It quite literally means called to one side. So para is a little Greek word that means alongside. Kletos, or to call. So you call to one side. The paraclete is somebody called to your elbow. Now, you call people to your elbow or your side for a whole variety of purposes. Sometimes a child will call a mother to his elbow in order to dust him down and uh, help him on his way. Sometimes if you're in legal difficulties, you will ask for somebody who's got some skill in pleading, like Tertullus, the orator. You'll call him alongside to be your paracletos. Sometimes if you're in despair and doubt and don't know what way to turn, you will turn to somebody who can give you advice as your paracletos, the paraclete. Now, the, the way that the AV has translated it here, I re have not checked, to be absolutely honest, what other translations do with it. I suspect they probably stay with the comforter, do they? Just checking. Um, because that's probably in its context really the sense of it. So who is a, what is a comforter? If, you, if you're in strife or in difficulty and you need somebody to give you a little bit of guidance, well, the person who comes alongside and gives you a bit of guidance, a bit of help bit of encouragement, you could quite properly call that person a comforter. Okay. Now, of course, sometimes if you're knowledgeable about these things, you know, in 1 John chapter 2, uh, we have a, a paracletos with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And of course, the AV translates that advocate. But the idea is still the same because he's called alongside to help, not to comfort in 1 John 2, but rather to protect and defend the saint when he sins and he stands before the righteous God of eternity and his sins are in the question. He pleads, of course, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, praise God, but the sins of the world. So you can see how one word can just take on a slightly different hue of meaning according to context. Here, frightened disciples, unsure of the future, what do you need the spirit of truth for? He's there to comfort you. When you stand before God and your sins are in the question, what do you need? You need the paracletos as the advocate to plead the merit of his work and the value of the death of Christ. So that is why this word here has the strength and force of comforter. Now notice what he says, that he may abide with you forever. And then he is defined again. Notice at the end of verse 17, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you. And this is perhaps the clearest expression of the point, and shall be in you. Now, 
maybe those words just don't leap out at the page as perhaps they might do or ought to do. The point is here is that the Lord Jesus is speaking to saints, Christians, disciples, if you will, who are Old Testament saints. Never make that mistake. Remember, Peter, James and John, and all these other disciples, although they lived contemporaneous with the Lord, they were Old Testament saints. They were still under the covenant of law. They had never heard of the idea of a Holy Spirit or a Spirit of truth that would dwell within them. They had never heard of that. But when you come to the New Testament and you begin to discover what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to the church, there is an absolute extraordinary truth evident, and that is this. How many are there here, are there here in the meeting tonight? Maybe, what, 25 possibly. You know, every one of you is a living, breathing miracle. Because in you, in you, is a person of the Godhead. In the Old Testament, there was a, there was a spirit, and he, you, you've read the stories about Samson and Saul, and when moments of crisis erupted, the spirit would come and lend aid and lend help. And that left David to cry plaintively, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He couldn't count on, depend upon, the, the personal presence of the spirit of God within. He knew it could be taken from him at any moment. You know, blessed truth. Without wanting to be too sentimental about it, we have a member, a person of the very God of heaven in our souls. Not visible, of course, on an x-ray. Not seen in a CT scan because it sees the spirits, an invisible spiritual idea that's in view. But we, we have a power and a strength and an enlightenment and an aid that the Old Testament saints simply did not have. Have you ever thought about the benefits of the church age? You have more resources at your disposal than ever Abraham had. You have more power at your uh, fingertips than ever Moses had. Though he spoke with God face to face, you have the spirit within you. And he says, not only in you, but he says, the Lord, Lord Jesus, he will abide with you forever. Now you see, therein lies the difference. He was a comforter, but he couldn't stay. He had to go. Here is a comforter, comforter that is at our elbow as the Christ of the Gospels was at the elbow of the disciples. We have the spirit of truth at our elbow forever. I judge that means throughout the whole course of the church age. I don't think that promise extends out into the tribulation. I think it's one of those qualified forevers of Scripture. Now, that is extraordinary. Now, it is extraordinary, you know. I don't know. I, I know. <laughs> how, do you, how do you get Christians animated? It's extremely difficult, by the way. Um, but, you know, sometimes the simplest truths are the best. I, maybe you've lived with this truth since you were in Sunday school. But I wonder if you've been in the good of that truth since you're at Sunday school. It is one of the characteristic truths of the church age that God has, in his wisdom, given us somebody called to our side who abides with us, in us, a resident power that gives us ability to triumph over sin, 
you know, if we'd been born under the dispensation of law, I think we would just be like Peter and say it was a yoke that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. Crushed by our guilt, unable to lift a finger to help ourselves. Can you imagine if rather than breaking bread, you had to dawdle along to the temple and offer up a sacrifice and, and then know that you would be making that selfsame journey a week or a day later? But we've got something greater than that, better than that, bigger than that, bolder than that. We have the spirit within, power over sin. Illumination as to the truth. Not temporary, transitory, but eternal. And in order for all and any of that to happen, he had to return to heaven. So the disciples are being instructed. There are things in life, you know, we don't like them happening. And we sometimes struggle a little bit to accept them. But things that we don't like and can't understand sometimes happen. And this is an example of it for our spiritual good. And the departure of Christ was just such a truth. Now, no, over in chapter 15 now, uh, let's look at the truth there in verse number uh, 26. But when the comforter, the paraclete, is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Now, you might ask yourself, how is the Spirit to do that? Well, I personally think the verse 27 is explanatory of that. And ye also, that's to say the disciples, shall bear witness because ye have been with me from the beginning, the beginning of his public ministry. Now, just a couple of things here and we'll move on. You familiar with the doctrine of headship in Midland Park? It's a controversial doctrine uh, because it's very hard for the Christian to explain to the world how we can believe absolutely in the equality of the sexes. You, you believe in the equality of the sexes. I, I, I kind of thought we all believed in that until an, an elderly lady in Hamilton, after I had taught this, said that she didn't. I said, you're a woman. And I thought, that. well, that is extraordinary. I never thought I would ever hear a lady tell me that she was not equal with a man. But I do believe that the doctrine of the New Testament is that we are all one in Christ. Remember the teaching in the Galatian epistle, and again in the First Corinthians 12, there is neither bond nor free, so uh, like social distinctions are erased, there's neither Jew nor Greek, so the national, national ethnic uh, differences, national differences are erased. Um, circumcision or uncircumcision, that's kind of religious differences are raised. And remember what he says, and neither male nor female. Now that is, we need to remember that now. We, 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 we do believe that, that, that the God, God of heaven does not value a male any more than he values a female. There is no discrimination in that sense. But what the world struggles to get is that in the Bible, equal persons are assigned different roles. And you see, the, the, the flaw really in the reasoning, although you will never, ever, ever get them to accept it, because you need to accept the Bible before even the argument can lift off the ground, is that the Lord Jesus was submissive to the Father, yet his equal. That's what this is about here, actually. It's showing that 
The Spirit was submissive to the Son. There was a hierarchy of relationships in the Trinity. The Father was God over all, blessed forever. The Son, though equal in his essence, he was as much divine as the Father was divine, equal in his essence, yet in his ministry, subsidiary to the Father. It's, an, we, it's one of the great, one of the most difficult and hard doctrines of Scripture is undering, understanding how one that was divine and therefore was omniscient depended on the Father for daily direction and for answered prayers. I find that really tough theology, actually. And one of these days, I'm going to set aside a month or two to try and really get to grips with it. But you constantly read of the Father saying to the disciples that he moved at the direction of the Father, not autonomously, but subject to the direction. He prayed to the Father. So what we are learning in that, that as, as the Son, not, by the way, not as the Son manifest in flesh, but as the Son, irrespective of his, of his incarnation, he submitted to the Father. Now, here we are being taught that the Spirit in turn is submissive to the Son. The Son sends, as he had been sent from the Father, I am come, says he, that you might have life. On his departure, there was another sending. It was the sending of the Son as ten days after his ascent into heaven on the day of Pentecost, which I think was a Sunday, the first day of a week, he sent the Spirit. And the Spirit submissively obeyed the will of the Son. Now, is the Spirit... In his essence, the equal of the Son. Well, absolutely he is. He's divine. Is the, is the Son, in his essence, the equal of the Father? Well, absolutely he is. He is divine. But there's mutual submission. Now, you see, what the world can't get is that somebody who was the equal of another might, in obedience to Scripture, submit. Because it that in the world we live in is a, a, a symptom of weakness and inferiority, isn't it? To submit voluntarily to another is thought to be symptomatic of weakness. And yet the whole ministry of Christ was a servant ministry. you agree with that? Willingly, voluntarily, submissively, giving up his own rights for the sake of others. And yet it is in that, that, this is the great paradox of Christianity, is that it's when we die we live. It's when we lose that we triumph. It's when we submit that we are lifted up. It is when we serve that we are exalted. And you know, it's a tremendous thing. Dear sister, you know, every sister here has her head covered. And I just wonder how much of the theology of that is, is really taught properly in the assemblies today. But what, what you are doing, really, is that you are in symbol form, just as bread is taken and wine is taken, and just as in this tank behind me, symbolically, people die visibly to Christ. You are expressing the truth of headship of submission you are not expressing the truth of inferiority 
And when you don't raise your voice in thanksgiving on Lord's Day morning, when you don't give out a psalm or a hymn of praise, when you sit silently in the ministry meetings, when you work out practically the truth of 1 Corinthians 14, which, by the way, is very, very clear, uh, where the apostle commands, let your woman keep silence, you are not admitting your inferiority. All that you are doing is giving expression to that standing and that role that in his wisdom God has given to you. So we need to sound the message out that though the Spirit submitted to Christ and sent was sent forth at his bidding that as to his essence he was the equal of Christ and yet willingly he submitted to him in order better to express the will of God. Notice also he is the spirit of truth. We're going to come to this a little bit further. One of the great ministries of the Holy Spirit is not merely to comfort and to guide in difficult days, but you know, in a wonderful way, the spirit of truth within us assists us in an understanding of the of God's mind. I I I I have a little bit of a weakness. I one of the things I've been chastising myself for recently is depending too much on commentaries and theological journals and magazines and so on because my, I have gotten myself in a very bad habit if I start studying I look at the passage I want to look at and I never I never do what I should do which is read it and say show me what this means in my heart just show me what it means and we sing sometimes in the hymn Spirit of God my teacher be show the things of Christ to me and what I do instead is spend hours reading the opinions of authors. And after spending hours, I come back to the verse I looked at at the start and, and uttered a prayer perhaps two hours too late. Oh, I'm hopelessly confused now. <laughs> what does this really mean? Now, I'm not denying, of course, the virtues of, of books. I wouldn't do that. But what I am teaching you is that you have within you, listen up, sister, listen up, brother. You have a person of the God who has an interest in expounding and revealing and helping you understand the great truths of Christianity. He's the spirit of truth. On two fronts, first of all, he's the spirit of truth because characteristically the spirit is the witness. He loves the truth. But above and beyond loving it, he loves to assist the Christian in his grasp of it. You know, and you will not be unaided. Open the page of your Bible, read it carefully, read it. Read it diligently, read it intelligently, and you will not be unaided. There is a person within who is the spirit of truth, and he will assist you in your understanding. Not merely of the, of the written word, by the way, but also, as it was then the case, of the spoken word. And he shall testify of me. Now, I take it that that is to do with the assistance that the Spirit gave in the preaching of the gospel. He would not speak audibly, but rather through the disciples, as it says in verse 17. They will bear witness, aided and assisted by the Spirit, as the gospel began to spread its wings. Now let's move on down a little bit to verse 8. 
Now, these are quite difficult words, and I, I don't want to stop in them, but I just want to say in very general terms what I think they mean. So he says again, it is expedient for you that I go away. It's necessary that I leave you, but the, the comforter who will take up my role and my office, he will come to you. I will send him to you. And three ministries are given to the Spirit. He will approve the world of sin. Now, I'm just going to not tell you what all the books and commentators say, and there's a profusion of ideas out there. I'm just going to try and keep it simple, and I'll just tell you what I think this means. And if you've got an issue with that, we can talk about it afterwards. What I think this means is that as we have learned at the end of the preceding chapter that the Spirit would, as it says there, he shall testify of me, we learn that the Spirit, the way the Spirit testifies of Christ, of Christ is through his, those he empowers. It's not so much the Spirit speaking audibly and supernaturally. The Spirit testifies as he empowers those that he indwells to speak of him. The Spirit testifies. You know, it's an extraordinary thing. You know, you think that sometimes the way we conduct ourselves at meetings is a little bit of a scandal, you know. The carelessness and the... And, the, uh, uh, and the, 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 the laxity that marks us when actually, extraordinarily, God is here. We are the house of God and the Spirit is among us. Ye are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And never forget that. When you stand up on a Lord's Day morning to worship, never forget that you're speaking to God. When you preach the gospel, you are being empowered and are the agent and spokesperson for the spirit of truth. We're not the bowling club. We're not the YMCA. We're none of these things. We're not even a state legislature or a seat of government, important though these institutions may be. We are a place where God dwells and God speaks. And ever let our hearts and spirits be quietened and softened as we remember whose we are and whom we serve. And we are the agents of the Godhead. We speak on his behalf. And says he, when he has come, he will reprove or convict or expose the world of sin. Why, verse 9 says, because they believe not on me. That is the basis of it all. The reason, the essential sin is not believing on Christ. That is the root of it all. That's the basis. Everything else flows out from that. But the fundamental sin, you could, I think, powerfully argue that the, 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 the cardinal sin from which all other sins flow is to reject Christ. And the purpose of the Spirit speaking through the preacher or the, the man that testifies at the side of the unsaved or puts a tract in his hand or stands in an open street, he's, he's seeking to convict the world of this essential sin that they believe not in me. And then the second ministry of the Spirit is this. He convicts of righteousness. Why does he convict of righteousness? Says the Lord Jesus, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Now, I take a very straightforward view of that. It's incredibly complicated 
explanations in the comment. I just take it. All you're saying is, I am. That is my. That is the ministry I have had. I I exposed the Pharisees' hypocrisy. I was a minister of righteousness. I upheld the law, and now I'm going. And so the Spirit must, as my envoy on earth, begin to take up the very thing that I have relinquished and left behind. He will convict of righteousness. I did it. He does it now. And thirdly, he says, not merely so, but he convicts of judgment. And then he adds these intriguing words. Why does he convict of judgment? He says, not because they're bad people, or not because they're going to the great white throne, or not because they've transgressed the law. These are all the explanations we might insert there. But he adds these words, because the prince of this world, who you know is the devil, because the prince of this world is judged. Now you will notice that he is diverting attention away from our judgment to the judgment of Satan. And the second thing you Yale graduates here in, <laughs> in Midland Park will notice is that he speaks about something that had not yet happened in the present tense. This is before Calvary, yeah? He doesn't say, because the prince of this world will be judged. You do know, of course, that Calvary was the judgment of Satan. Colossians, for example, speaks of that moment when everybody looked at Calvary and thought that he, the Lord Jesus, was being spoiled and humiliated and exposed. But the perception of the apostle of Calvary is radically different. It says he of Calvary, he spoiled principalities and powers. Calvary, paradoxically, was not the moment of Christ's defeat. It was the moment of his triumph. He ascended up on high. He led captivity captive. He gave gifts unto men. Calvary was the victory over death. The Hebrews epistle, Hebrew 2 teaches that, doesn't it? It says there, he destroyed him. That had the power of death. Who? That is the devil. And he delivered them. Who through all their lifetime was subject to bondage. You say, that can't be Calvary he's speaking about. He was defeated. He was overcome. He died. No. He triumphed. And the judgment of Satan, the moment, I do believe Satan is not omniscient, by the way, and he had been heading towards Calvary from the very moment he first hissed into the ear of Eve in the garden. His eye was on Calvary. And at the very moment of his, as he thought, greatest victory, that victory was snatched from his hand. And the prince of this world, Satan himself, was condemned in the death of Christ. So what is he teaching here? I do believe two things. First of all this. He's first of all saying this. The spirit con convicts this world of judgment. 
I do believe, by the way, it is judgment to come. Why does it convict of men and women of the fact that they will face God and be judged for their sins? Because he's given proof of what lies in the future by an event that for him lay on the morrow. And based on Calvary and the victory of Christ over sin and death and the hordes of Satan, that great judgment on Calvary, Christ acquired the right to judge this world for its sin. His judgment as the throne sitter of the great white throne is founded, built, and based upon the triumph and victory of Calvary. He was judged, the very prince of darkness. And because he is judged, this world will be judged. And its defeat is but a portent of a greater defeat on a future day. Three ministries the Holy Spirit has in this world. Taking up, by the way, the ministry of Christ, he convicted of sin. He convicted men of the righteousness, or rather the lack of it. He convicted men of judgment. And all these things rest on the great solid foundation of the triumph of Christ on Calvary's cross. And then he says, Verse 12, I have many things to say unto you. You cannot bear them now. One of the things the Lord Jesus was um, restricted by was not lack of time, unlike me, but the dullness of his subjects. You will understand I couldn't claim that this evening. Yeah? Getting uncomprehending looks. (laughs) So my difficulty is not you. But when the Lord was here, that was his problem. He had people that just, there were things that he taught that, they, that there were two big things, two huge roadblocks on the Lord's teaching ministry. First of all, his divinity. They were monotheistic Jews and they really struggled with the idea that the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the eternal God of the ages, was to be compared with the man that stood before them. Do you remember the words with which John 14 opens? Philip, in exasperation, says, Father, Saviour, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. Remember what he said? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Now he's not collapsing the distinction between Father and Son as if they were one unitary person. He's not collapsing the distinction. What he is saying is that you need to understand that the power and dignity and might of the Jehovah of the Old Testament is the power, dignity and might resident in me. You want to see the Father? You don't need to see the Father. You can see him living, breathing, speaking, standing before you. This tabernacle in the wilderness, the Word made flesh, And they couldn't handle that truth. It took them a long time before they appreciated that even in the upper room in the very shades of Calvary, they're still struggling with the status and the rights and the position of the Son. The other thing that they struggled with even beyond Calvary was the station of Israel in the new economy. You know, that even in the, new, in the early chapters of the Acts, of, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom unto Israel? You've told us you're the Messiah. You've told us you're the anointed one. You've told us you're the Christ. Where is your throne? 
Where is your kingdom? And in the very eve of Calvary, they're perplexed and anxious. How can a man that is going to die ever be the Messiah of Israel? And the Lord, in a very real sense, had an un unfinished business when he went to the cross. He had still disciples that really could not comprehend him. Who finished the business? He says, I'll spend this, send the Spirit, and when he has come, he shall lead you into all truth. Now, you see, that doesn't mean, as some have supposed, that the Spirit of God will enable you to memorize Strong's Concordance. I would quite like to memorize Strong's Concordance because it would save me a lot of trouble. But I don't think that the Spirit of Truth is ever going to give me the power to memorize Vine's Dictionary or Strong's Concordance, or even for that matter, the whole of the New Testament. If anybody here has memorized the whole of the New Testament, I take my hat off to you, except I'm not wearing a hat, so I can't take it off to you, but you know what I mean. So when the Spirit of Truth, he shall lead you into all truth. You see, I think the big problem for us is we just imagine these disciples clustered around the Lord with their AVs open, probably black leather bound, with a lovely ribbon marker down the middle. I know this is radical theology, but I'll let you into a secret. They didn't have one. And moreover, none of the disciples had one of any shape, variety, or distinction till around about the 16th century. 16th century had to roll their course before scriptures became in the form with which we're acquainted with it, publicly available. How was truth known and believed in the first century AD? Largely through oral teaching and memorization. That's why great stress is laid in the New Testament to the public reading of Scripture. Because you couldn't go home and consult your Gideon Bible back then. So when he says all truth, it's not so much the totality of Scripture as to their verses and chapters and lines and so on. It's the essential truths of Christianity. So what, when you get occasional summaries of that in the New Testament, Acts 2, 41, 42, Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, Ephesians 4, we passage we were talking about the essential doctrines of the New Testament are kind of condensed into that's the all truth. His deity, his humanity, his resurrection, his ascension, the descent of the Spirit, the future judgment of the dead. That is the truth. And that was what they were struggling with. They were still struggling to understand how it could possibly be that he was going to die on a cross, go to heaven, and the kingdom would never be restored. Now you and I know why. We are the reason why. The church has had to be created. The, the Gentile bride for Christ has had to run its course. Israel's plans and prophecies will be resumed. But they didn't get that. All truth was not yet. And the Spirit came in order for that truth to be brought within the scope of their understanding. And we know very rapidly that did happen. There actually doesn't seem to be a whole lot of problems with the truth of the apostles from about Acts 2 on. The only people that struggled with it those that knew the baptism of John, and remember, they didn't quite get things, so that needed to be explained to them. So when the Spirit have come, young, young Christian, older Christian, if you read that verse, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. 
He shall not speak of himself, that's on his own authority, but whatsoever he shall hear, he shall speak. You might have wondered, how do I know all truth? Well, you need to recalibrate. This is not that you know everything that is possible to know about every verse what has ever been written, but it's the truth of the core truths of Christianity, the essential fundamental principles of the faith. You know that the faith is a different concept from the Bible. The faith are those cardinal truths that we put our confidence and trust in. Now, I'm nearly there. Now, we read, uh, last of all, um, just that little verse there at the end. Notice what it says. He shall show you things to come. He shall glorify me, he shall receive of mine, he shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Now, I do believe, and I'll close with this, that this is a very specific promise given to the disciples that were there. And bear in mind that the disciples that he is writing uh, to here are the men that would write the New Testament scriptures. John himself was present. And this promise that the Spirit would come, and he will says he guide you, it's the word of somebody at your elbow. By the way, the best kind of way of, of finding out the truth is not to be battered over the head with it in a, in a Sunday afternoon ministry meeting. At least that's my experience. Is the, way, the way the people of God get the truth is when you're guided into it. It's the, the paraclete at your elbow just guiding you gently and carefully so that you come to appropriate it for yourself, not by bullying or badgering or any of those things, but, but willingly, gladly, with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, being guided into all truth. I notice what he says here. He shall show you things to come. And then, um, just a little bit further down, all things that the Father hath are mine, therefore I shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Now, just close with this. I want, I want you to do a little experiment for me. Um, you know, some of you have been taking notes, which is good. But, some of you haven't, which is all right. Um, go home tonight. In, in the UK, I say, have a cup of tea, but you probably have a cup of coffee, do you? At this time, I don't know, where you have a iced tea. I, sorry, the one cultural revolution will never happen. We will never get iced tea. Sorry. I've drunk more iced tea this past week than you could shake a stick at. It's, it doesn't work for me. But let's say you go home, you drink your iced tea. Just before you go to bed, take out an A4 sheet of paper and see how much of what I've said you can remember. Now, I, I, I will be astonished if you get beyond a paragraph. I mean my exact words, not my headings. And that will have meant that maybe a little bit over an hour has passed since you heard me. You ever thought about the miracle of Scripture? 
the spirit of truth would come and what he had taught them, he would show to them. I mean, John 17, John 16 are extraordinary because these are the words of Christ, line upon line, paragraph upon paragraph, page after page. Now, you are not going to be able to do that with me. You might, get, you might remember the paraquat and the paraclete, and you might even remember the paracletos. You might get that, and maybe you'll get a little bit, uh, but you are, I, I guarantee you this, well, you bright people in Midland Park, you are not going to be able to write down what I said. But the miracle of Scripture is that the Spirit enabled them to do that very thing. Extraordinary, really. And if, as we are told, he wrote this gospel maybe 60 years after the Lord had uttered these words in, well, the upper room in part and on the road away to Gethsemane, the Spirit of truth, he shall bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have commanded you. And he adds, now here's, here's a really difficult text, he shall show you things to come. What book did John write that would answer that? The book of Revelation, which is classically things to come. So I think what he's doing here is not so much just the spirit of truth guiding us to understand the truth. I think this is a very specific promise to this little band of people, many of whom would be the very men to whom we owe a debt as being those that wrote line upon line the page of Holy Scripture. That he, the comforter, the spirit of truth, the parakletos, would assist them in those early years of testimony in the extraordinary task of creating this treasure we hold in our hands, the scriptures of truth. Shall we?